0: Hi, this is Simon Yeo. Thank you so much for subscribing to my podcast, Simon Says. I want you to know that I appreciate every one of you out there for tuning in. Now check out today's podcast. Salutations, Simon Sayers. Welcome back to another episode of this podcast. One of the goals for Season 2 of Simon Says is for us to focus more on the events and happenings in Malaysia. So far, we've been talking about the pandemic, the rule of law, the general challenge to freedom and liberty in our nations for this season. Last week, I talked about the proclamation of the emergency made by our king on the eleventh of January, twenty twenty-one, and more than a week ago, His Majesty the King decreed that Parliament can be reconvened if there is such advice from the Prime Minister. There, for me, seems to be an indication that our king accepts and respects his positions as a ruler whose power and authority is subject to our constitution, which is the highest law of the land. Another way to look at this is basically basically this. The king is subscribing to the legal positions that pursuant to Article 40, Part 1 of the constitution, his decrees and proclamations are usually subject to the advice of the prime minister or the government of the day. This is in line with Justice Ong Hothai's judgment in Stephen Gant, case number 2, 1968. And I believe it's a general legal position by most constitutional experts in our nation. Now, I talked about this issue in, in the last episode, so if you have missed that episode, feel free to go back and have a listen. So what do we make of the advice by the king? Simply stated, the king is now passing the ball back to the prime minister and indirectly hinting that the time may be right for the parliament to reconvene. If the Prime Minister would indeed advise the king to reconvene parliament, it could elevate the perception. And again, we come back to this word perception because the perception is real. And it is a perception that our Prime Minister was calling emergency to prevent his position from being challenged from members of the parliament in the event a sitting is reconvened. The question is, would our Prime Minister do that? Right now we are seeing responses to the King's advice coming in fast and furiously from all different parties and that is what we want to discuss today. So it has been more than a week since our King, His Majesty, gave the advice on the possibility of the parliament reconvening now, Prime Minister Muhyiddin gave a statement to the effect that he was not using the emergency as a bid to hold on to power, and that he is someone who truly understood and respected democracy. You see, when a political leader needs to come out and say, "Read my lips, this is what I said, this is what I meant, basically, when a person has to come out and to clarify That shows that this politician is under pressure. This politician is now backtracking. So the question is, is Muhideen backtracking? I must say, his tone remains defiant. And Prime Minister continued. He said, I will eventually consult the king and that parliament will eventually be dissolved, paving way for an election. Now here's the thing. The next general election is not due until september twenty twenty three. Why is there talk for dissolution of parliament? You see one of Muhyiddin's supposedly ally in his Perikatan National PN coalition is basically Amno, and Amno has been most vocal in calling for an election as a means to resolve the issue concerning the formation of a stable government. Now, I'm not, of course felt confident, and they believed they could win and is actually in a leading position to form the next federal government. Now two things I believe contributed to this sort of thinking and mindset. Firstly, it is due to the formation of PN government, which many had deemed backdoor and not quite legitimate. Now the legality of the formation of PN government is something quite complex and we will not discuss today. Now since it is considered not quite legitimate the thinking is the Rakyat deserves another government Now the second reason is due to the performance of Pakatan Harapan PH as government for around 2 years Now fair or not PH has been severely criticized for their numerous U-turns and lack of reforms Now unfortunately and this is the truth Pakatan Harapang is being judged on a different standard than previous Barisan National Government. And I think partly it is due to the extremely high expectation placed upon them by the supporters and everyone else when they formed government in 2018. Now speaking about elections, can pandemic be used to justify the delay and even postponing of a legal election? You know, I've been speaking a lot on the pandemic and how uh, that has been used by those in powers as a reason to restrict freedom and liberty. The right to vote, the right to have representation of the people's choice is a fundamental right in any democratic society. So we have seen, for example, in the recent US presidential elections last year, how the rules for voting such as the use for postal votes uh, with very little verification, those rules are being pushed without much consideration. And that caused the transparency of the whole election process, at least in the United States, to be questioned. Now, more problematic is when parties are legitimately raising issues relating to the transparency. I mean, it's freedom of speech, right? People should be able to raise certain issues if they have concerns. And unfortunately, all these voices are being suppressed and subdued. You see, one of the things that have happened in the last three to four years is the emergence of the censorship by mainstream media. Now, that's not something that is surprising for us in Malaysia because the mainstream media here has been censoring on behalf of the government for the longest time. But there is also censorship from the big tech. Now, who are the big tech? These are multinational technology companies with more power, more influence, more resources than many sovereign nations on earth. Google, for example, is one of the primary examples of big tech. They produced an internal document called the Good Sensor, right around 2016, after the election of Donald Trump. And the Good Sensor basically asserts that the company has a duty See, they frame it as a duty to censor material which it deems to be harmful to society. Now, here's a question I want to ask. Who gives big tech the power to be investigator, prosecutor, and judge? Who gives them the power to judge what is right and wrong? So right now, we are seeing a very alarming cancel culture happening on all the platforms on the big tech. On Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Reddit, everything. If your views are not compatible with their view, they just ban you. They silence you. Google, for example, is clearly unhappy with Donald Trump and more importantly, his supporters, and is arbitrarily censoring them in the manner Google shall absolutely determine. This is alarming, if not outright scary. Now, all this development is a little bit disappointing. Now, I won't say surprising because the clues are out there if you have been following the technology development and advancement. It is disappointing because in the early days of the internet, when it first became mainstream, maybe 10, maybe 15 years ago, there was this promise. And the promises made by industry biggest icons, from Bill Gates of Microsoft to Larry Page of Google. And their promise was this. The World Wide Web is the global town square unbound by censors, with a worldwide audience of millions just a click away, and information was to be forever free. At last, it was not to be, but this is something which is very interesting and I really want to take another episode, hopefully in future, to discuss this, but we will not be doing that today. So let's come back to the discussions on the king's advice in relation to the possibility of reconvening of parliament. So, many responses came in, and here's some. Anwar Ibrahim, representing the Pakatan Harapan's bloc, questioned the Prime Minister's continual silence on the issue of parliament reconvening. Now, it is a response that's quite predictable for Anwar because Pakatan Harapan's position has always been that the parliament needs to be reconvened. Now, we need to remember that the Perikatan National Government (PN Government) had already survived the passing of budget in 2020. Now, of course, at that time they had helped from the previous Barisan National bloc, especially from AMNO member of parliament. It was a very close vote, but they survived nevertheless. But in recent times, the relationship between AMNO and Mohidin's Bersatu had reached all-time low to the extent that AMNO had issued a statement that it will not work with Basatu in the next general election, GE15. Of course, at the same time, they say that we will still help Basatu to maintain the PN government until such a time election is called. So it is like a passive, aggressive sort of situation. They are like a couple no longer in love, no longer in commitment, but they have to somehow remain together for practical reasons. Interestingly, the Barisan National Coalition issued a statement and that statement was signed by Anwar's President and Barisan National Chairman Ahmad Zahid So, the statement called for parliament to be reconvened and interestingly the statement is very similar to the statement issued by Anwar Ibrahim and some even say it's like a copy and paste statement Of course Predictably, there was some hoo ha from the Barisan National camp with junior coalition members saying the statement from Zahid was not approved by the Barisan National Supreme Council. I mean, who are we to kid ourselves? Barisan National is basically AMNO, and junior members are all irrelevant. And this is just a reality. Because the only former Barisan National party bloc that is still somewhat relevant will be the GPS, and they, they are relevant in Sarawak, but not everywhere else. But all the junior parties, they are like, just totally irrelevant. What's more important is really the final result from the internal squabblings among the different factions in UMNO. That will really determine the future of Barisa National as a coalition, or not. And finally, Prime Minister decided to unleash the de facto law minister, Takayudin Hassan, to do his dirty work. So Takayudin basically said, There shall be no reconvening of parliament until 1st of August, and that any decision to do so must be made by the cabinet. So suddenly, the executive arm of the government, the cabinet, it has power over the legislative arm, the parliament? Isn't emergency the power and domain under the king? Isn't it under the king subject to the framework of the constitution? Now, of course, the usual reason was given. You know, COVID-19, still very dangerous. Many of the members of parliament are in high-risk group. I mean, can't we have remote meetings? Can't we have online meetings? Everyone has been doing that for the past 12 months. Why not the parliament? What is so special about them? Now, predictably, Takuyudin's statements have been blasted from the Pakatan Harapan group. And PH essentially said almost the entire nation's economic sectors have been allowed to come back to work. Why are we preventing the reconvening of the parliament? Of course, this goes back again to the perception we have been talking about since the last episode. That is, the Prime Minister is doing all that he could to prevent his position from being challenged. And a vote of no confidence, given the rocky relationship between Bersatu and Amno at this time, is within the realm of possibility. Now, all the things I mentioned are happening with the backdrop of Member of Parliament such as Larry Sern and Stephen Chun, both of PKR, pledging their support to the Prime Minister. And of course, they resigned from their respective parties. And then we also heard some state representative in Perak, from DAP joining Bersatu. So this is what we call the political frauds. There has been a clamoring for anti-hopping law that is basically you can't jump from one party to another party to be made effective in Malaysia. But I want to ask, is that really the right move? Now, granted, we have not seen in what forms, in what sort of substance, what sort of law that will come out from this so-called anti-hopping law, you know, because there has been discussion, but nothing concrete has been formulated. Honestly, I'm not holding my breath though. No politicians will consciously limit his or her ability to become more powerful. This is just the reality of politics. You see, political fraud jumping is a double-edged sword. Today, you may be doing the recruiting Tomorrow you might be the victim. The problem of course is the corruption, the promise of obscene amount of cash, the promise of certain favours such as the dropping of persecutions, etc, etc. My own personal view is that the anti-hopping law is not necessarily a good thing. And the reason is that you are binding an elected representative to a particular party. Now, political parties have always talked about party discipline and how one should vote in accordance to the policies of the party. That's why you have position called party whip, Okay, you know, the whip that you, you use to, to hit people. Literally, that person is a senior leader whose job is to cause all elected representatives to fall in line with the party's positions for particular issues. Yet, at the same time, the use of party whip is tactical and only applies selectively. This is because political party does not want to give the impression that they are dictating elected representatives into behaving like robots, when in reality, the mandates of those who are elected, it is given by the people and it is not given by the political party. Then of course, there is the issue of personal choice and conscience, which I'm not going to say anymore. But I do get it why people are frustrated. Most of the political fraud-jumping cases we have seen in recent times are obviously motivated by rewards for self-benefiting. So it is really sickening, okay? Now, I will argue that the better way, I believe it is a much slower process. is for voters to get smart and to vote a person based on their character and record. You know, some would say this is not realistic, this is just being too idealistic. I know it is not easy, especially with the power of money, with the power of resources and the media to influence voters. But this is the era that we are in. We need to do our own due diligence. We need to do our own research. Otherwise, we will be blindsided by the deceiving politicians again and again. So here's how I want to end today. Now, I've spoken about this many times, but let me just say it again. When the federal government was finally changed for the first time in 2018, it was an event that signified a maturing of our democracy. Yes, it's only a small step, but we are moving into the right place. The one truly incredible achievement in 2018 was really the ability to peacefully transition from one government to another. And we have a federal government who has been there for the longest time. The dream of many to have a two-party system was finally realised. But very soon we came to the realisation that lasting and meaningful change takes time. It is actually very challenging. We have competing priorities, we have competing policies, some favour quicker and more drastic reforms, while others prefer dragging their feet and maintaining status quo. It is a fact that you can't change something which has been the norm the last 50 years in just one moment. We needed more time. There was disappointment with the Pakatan Harapan government, of course. Some criticisms were valid, some perhaps not so. Then at the start of the worldwide pandemic event in 2020, just last year, we saw the Sheraton move, which created the current backdoor Pakatan national government under the leadership of Prime Minister Muhyiddin. Now, PN. It's a very weird collision with Mohidin's faction from Basatu after the removal of Dr Mahathir's Ghent. Then we have most of the old Barisan National Ghent, primarily Amno, GPS and some minor players. And then we have those aligned with Azmin Ali who left Pakatan Harapan. So it's like a collision, mumbo-jumbo sort of collision. Are we seeing the end of two-party system almost as soon as we achieve it as a nation? That's a question to think. You see, most West Minister-style parliamentary democracies, that adhere to the two-party system. And occasionally, you get some minor parties who become key makers. So this is still true, mostly in United Kingdom, in Australia, in Canada. And, you know, is that really the ideal political system? I mean, that will be a discussion for another day. Or are we as a nation descending into multi-political parties' collision like many of those European nations? A drastic example is Israel. And Israel had been unable to form a stable government even after three elections since 2020. And they will have another election, 20th of March this month. And another nation that comes to mind with all this mumbo-jumbo collision will be Italy and Italy. So those are the European model. So what is the political scene going to be like for Malaysia going forward? Will Malaysia go to a place where we no longer flock and support a party that is primarily race-based? I think many of us might have forgotten, in 2014, after Barisan National narrowly won the GE general election 13, BN was very much weakened in many areas, but Amno, the Malay dominant party, actually became even stronger. So much so that all the other component parties in Barisan National became almost totally irrelevant, even until now. And I think the only one that is not totally irrelevant is GPS in Sarawak. Now, with the PN... Perikata National Coalition. The primary members are actually all Malay-based political parties, like Bersatu, like AMNO, like PAS. So, is this the way forward for Malaysia? See, conventional political pundits are saying that Prime Minister Mohidin is avoiding an election as long as he could, because there is no way Bersatu can compete against AMNO or even PAS for Malay votes. Nothing is certain, but voters will eventually be given the opportunity to make their voices heard. In the near future, when automatic registrations of new voters becomes effective, now the law has been passed, but there's a lot of things they need to plan with the election commission, etc., etc. We will get millions of new voters who will be able to make their choices known. Interestingly, all the different political parties, all the different political spectrums in our nations, they are all confident in uh, you know, capturing the vote of all these new generation of voters Here's the thing, there is no shortcut to nation's building and nation transformation We have to keep talking, we have to keep discussing We have to keep causing people to be aware of what's happening you know Whether it's good or bad, it's like people need to not be ignorant and ultimately they will be able to come to a place to make the right choices. We need to speak the truth. We need to learn to research. We need to learn to make the best choices in order for us to make Malaysia the best that she could be. So I still believe that the future can be good. It can be exciting. And this is still the best place for many of us. But only if we make the right choices along the way. And sometimes the right choices are not necessarily the easier choices. So that's all I want to say for today. And thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you up again next time. Bye-bye.